Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. We're continuing in our series in the book of Mark. The title of the series is About Jesus. And the title of this particular message is A Masterpiece Like No Other. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we're asking you today to open our eyes to who you are in the face of Christ. Help us to, Lord, grow in our appreciation for what we see of you here in Scripture. Help us to be moved by it. There's, there are things that we're going to read today that many of us are familiar with. But Lord, our prayer, my prayer has been that, that this story wouldn't just be just a story to us, something that we've been so familiar with that it becomes mundane and that we treat it casually. Lord, instead, my prayer, Lord, you know how it's been, Lord, that you would wake us up to what's been accomplished on the cross, that you'd help us to see the beauty and the majesty Lord, all that you've accomplished, the finished work of Jesus for us, what it meant then and what it means for us now and forever, that we would see the work of Jesus as the centerpiece, the centerpiece of your story of rescue and love, that it would come alive, that you'd wake our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, years ago, Val and I visited Paris And as a former art major, I remember feeling like a seven-year-old in Disney World. It was incredible. I mean, everywhere I looked, we we would just run into these beautiful works of art everywhere. And I remember thinking, I I saw this work of art in a book. I saw that one in a book. But in a book, you know, depending on the print, (laughs) the colors could change when you're in real life. And in a book, the scale, you just don't really grasp the scale of a masterpiece or a work of art. In a book, it's hard to appreciate the details of that masterpiece. You can't see the brush strokes. And I remember standing before some uh, uh, Da Vinci paintings. Everyone's uh, over there looking at Mona Lisa. And, and, and I, I, I checked her out. I saw Mona. She was a lot smaller than I thought she was going to be. Um, but anyway, uh, I was looking at some other Da Vinci's that no one was looking at. And I'm leaning in, and I'm seeing little paint bristles from his paintbrush caught in the paint uh, of these paintings. And I'm thinking, okay, that's da Vinci's paintbrush, his, his bristles that are caught in that paint. That's crazy. I mean, this is just insane. And um, it, was, it, was, it was awesome. But there we were, standing in front of masterpiece after masterpiece. And I think it was at the point that we were standing before Mona Lisa, I thought, okay, I'm familiar with this work. But when I came face to face with it, you know, there's just something that changed. I realized I didn't know anything about it. We've come to a part in the Gospel of Mark that is very familiar territory to to a lot of us here. And in many ways, that's good, but we run the risk of assuming we know exactly what's going on here. We run the risk of assuming we know what we're looking at. Because we're familiar with it, it can become mundane, it can lose its edge. And we run the risk of reading it too quickly and moving on too quickly. And so what's happening in Mark 15 is nothing short of a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece like no other. It's the centerpiece of God's story of rescue and love. And so I pray that we would lean in and appreciate the brushstrokes. Mark 15, starting in verse 16. 
The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and together the whole company of soldiers. I'm sorry, let's start again. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put, on his, own, put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country. And they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. Uh, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling for Elijah. One man ran filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. We're going to highlight four quotes this morning, each quote helping us appreciate the color and the scale and the detail and the beauty of this masterpiece. The first quote is found on the lips of the soldiers. Hail, King of the Jews, they say. Roman authorities are going to take it from here. The religious leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate. Pilate has declared uh, the judgment, the verdict. He will be crucified. Jesus will be crucified. And so the Romans authorities, they take it from here. A large group of elite soldiers led Jesus to the praetorium or the headquarters. And they show no restraint. The mockery begins at once. And with it, this incredible irony keeps showing up. It's as if it's painted in colors that were meant to stand out. A purple robe. This is a cloak that's just laid over Jesus. It's draped over him. It's the color of royalty. A crown of thorns most likely twisted from branches of nearby palms and then this this homage that they give to jesus hail king of the jews hail king of the jews it's a parody of hail emperor caesar 
Verse 19, it says, again and again, they struck him on the head and spit on him. Now we have to remember by this time, Jesus has been flogged. His arms were chained to a post as he endured uh, a whip from several ends, each end of this whip uh, holding bone or metal or glass. He endured at least 40 lashes, which would have ripped his back wide open, just skin hanging off and blood pouring out. Many who suffered flogging couldn't endure it and died before their crucifixion. Now, with his flogging in mind, I want us to, re- uh, to read verse 19 again. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff, and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. The humiliation, the degradation, the traumatic shock from the effects of the flogging, the loss of blood, and this was only just the beginning. These are professional executioners that we're dealing with. This is a play-by-play account of the moments leading up to Jesus' death. And years ago, I remember visiting with my grandmother shortly after my grandfather passed, and because she wasn't there when he passed, they had uh, come to get him at, at their home, and uh, the ambulance took him to the hospital, and before she got to the hospital, he passed away. Uh, she had requested from the hospital the paperwork. She wanted to know what happened leading up to his death, naturally. What I didn't know when I had visited my grandmother that morning was that she was going to ask me to read the moments leading up to my grandfather's death to her. She hadn't read them yet. She wanted to know what happened. Very difficult situation, as you can imagine. This isn't just anybody. This is my grandfather. This is the one who makes the best chicken and dumplings. This is the one who would cut my hair short, too short, way too short, every time. He was a barber. It's my grandfather. So here I am, reading the moments before his death, and what happened, a play-by-play. It's terrible. But she wanted to know. And as I read the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, it just it hits me. Jesus isn't a stranger to me. He's not a stranger to me anymore. You know, the more I've come to know him over the years, the more personal this is. It's like reading what they're doing to a family member. It's like reading what they're doing to a friend, to one of you, someone I know. It's personal, and it should be. He's our friend. He's our Savior. There were a lot of spectators that day. We're told of a man from Cyrene or from North Africa that he was watching these events unfold. He was coming in from the countryside. And as a sort of parenthesis, Mark says, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. It's as if Mark is saying, Listen, you can, you can go talk to Alexander and Rufus yourself about this story because their dad was there. And in fact, Romans 16, 13 mentions Rufus. And I don't know how many people had the name Rufus back then, but there was probably only one. <laughs> the point is, he's saying, go talk to these guys yourself. Simon was unexpectedly forced to participate Imagine the feeling of dread that overcame Simon the moment the soldiers just 
looked at him and said, now you, you carry the crossbeam. Because Jesus, at this point, couldn't carry the crossbeam. Traditionally, they wouldn't carry the entire cross. The stake was in the ground or it was at the execution site. But the crossbeam would be carried by those being executed. And they would, they would put it over their shoulders and they'd walk down the street towards their, execu- their place of execution. But Jesus couldn't do it. He couldn't bear the crossbeam. His back had been ripped open. He'd been flogged. He had been beat over the head. And so Simon is taken out of the crowd and told to carry, to help carry Jesus' cross. Imagine what was going through Simon's head. How'd I get here? This beam is heavy. I have to stay focused. What else are they going to do to me? What did this man do to deserve this sentence? How much further... Their destination, Golgotha, Calvary. The place of death, the place of the skull. Many say that the actual place that, th- that, these, uh, that those who were executed by crucifixion uh, went was outside of the city gates on top of a rock that was shaped like a skull or had the form of a skull. But Whether it was shaped like a skull or near it was the graveyard, it was the place of death. That's where they were headed. They offered Jesus mixed wine with myrrh, which would have acted like a narcotic, would have had the combined effect of numbing, but also extending the torture. This isn't grace. This isn't, oh, we feel bad for this guy. This is, let's numb him up a little bit so he can last longer and suffer longer on the cross. Verse 24 Mark says this, and they crucified him. That's it. He doesn't get into the horrendous details. His first readers knew what was involved in crucifixion. If you've been around uh, church for any length of time, I'm sure you've heard sermons of just how brutal, we've already talked about flogging, how painful. We're going to get into it a little bit. But what Mark says, he just says, and they crucified him. His first readers would have understood. They would have seen crucifixions happening. Thousands and thousands of people have been crucified. But Mark does mention some interesting points, some interesting details. He says they divided up his clothes and cast lots to see what each would get. why, Why this detail? We'll get to that. The second quote I want us to see is from the crowd and the religious leaders. They say, come down. Come down from the cross and save yourself. You, if you're the Christ. You've saved others, so why don't you save yourself? It's around 9 a.m. when Jesus was crucified. They would have nailed his arms, his wrists to the cross beam. They would have hoisted him up on the stake nailing his feet one over the next. The searing pain that radiated through Jesus' body would have sent him into convulsions, tightening up every muscle. You ever get a muscle cramp in your, uh, in your leg or your arm and how painful that is? His whole body was basically one big muscle cramp. Having trouble even breathing because these iron nails were passing through nerves. And so with every lift to get a breath, 
he would feel radiating pain throughout his body. And then he'd sink down and he'd have to do it again. Cramping muscles, loss of blood, dehydration, the inability to breathe. Death by crucifixion was designed to maximize pain and suffering in every way. So by this time, Jesus is most likely completely naked. Every aspect of the crucifixion was humiliating and was meant to shame the one being condemned. Crucifixion is a message of what happens when you oppose Rome. Jesus is going to die. And if you've ever been at the bedside of someone you love who you know is going to die, someone you don't want to say goodbye to, you know in part how the disciples were feeling that day. The written notice above Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now the Jews hated that this was what was written. It was done as a form of mockery, of derision, disrespect to the Jews, really, and to Jesus. But the notice gets it right. Do you remember in Mark 10, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where James and John asked to sit at Jesus' right and his left when he came into his glory. And they didn't really understand what they were asking, and all the other disciples were really angry that they were asking for these positions. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Jesus had already predicted his death and how he would die and what would happen. He predicted it a number of times. They weren't really understanding what Jesus was saying. Jesus pulls them aside and he says, listen, to sit at my right or left, this is in chapter 10, verse 40, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So with that in mind, let's read verse 27. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Two thieves, most likely insurrectionists with Barabbas. What is this about? One on his right, one on his left. The cross is the means through which Jesus would enter his glory. Actually, the cross would be understood as Jesus' throne, his exaltation. It's the place of Jesus' triumph because of what he accomplishes there, our rescue. We want to sit at your right and left, Jesus, do you? Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? He said, will you be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized with? In Hebrews chapter 12, we read this, verse 2, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men. We have to ask why. Why should we consider him? so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So church, if you're in a place of losing heart, you feel like a, you're just gonna, you're, you're weary, you're tired, you've been running hard, 
You, you just you feel like you're, you're lacking faith and joy in your relationship with God, and you feel like you're drifting. You feel a bit numb and callous. Let me encourage you to fix your eyes on Jesus this morning. Don't take your eyes off of him. He's the author and the perfecter of your faith. So your faith didn't begin with you to start. It began with him. He's the author. And so he's going to continue to perfect it and to grow you. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. What was that joy? It was you and me. It was what the cross would produce for you and me. Triumph. Victory. His exaltation. In his humiliation. It wasn't for Jesus to grant who would sit on his right and left. We find here in Mark chapter 15 a surprise. Thieves. Rebels. Insurrectionists are on his right and left. Jesus is drinking the cup of God's wrath on humanity. The Son of Man, the fully human one, is taking on and fully absorbing what is directed at all of humanity. What all humanity is deserving of. Just judgment. Just punishment. But it's Instead of being poured out on humanity, the the fully human one, who is also fully divine, is taking upon himself the judgment we deserve. It's a baptism of death. The hatred and the mockery begins to reach its height. In verse 29, the crowds, they say, come down from the cross and save yourself. I, I hope you see the irony in what they're saying the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Oh, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Come down from the cross. Two times, come down from the cross. He could have. Could have called a legion of angels to rescue him. He's the son of God. Has all authority. He chose to stay. He chose to stay on the cross. Love kept him there. The joy set before him kept him there. The ridicule, the contempt, the scoffing, the taunting, all the sarcasm and the mockery that he was enduring from every direction. Oh, the irony. Salvation is why Jesus is on the cross. It's why he's up there. So he's enduring physical and emotional and psychological and spiritual suffering. But the depth of his suffering isn't over. The third quote that we see that's helping us appreciate, I pray, appreciate the brushstrokes of this masterpiece is Jesus. This quote from Jesus himself where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At 12 noon, a supernatural darkness came over the entire land until 3 o'clock. Now, this wasn't an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse. And there's a lot of reasons for that. The time of year, the size of the moon, all kinds of things. It couldn't have been a dust storm, as some suggest. It, I believe this was a supernatural darkness that fell on the land. I believe it was a darkness that could be felt 
Darkness in Scripture actually represents God's judgment. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 21 through 23, it describes a divine darkness that fell on Egypt. Do you remember? One of the plagues that would eventually lead to the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian slavery. This darkness that fell in, interestingly, it was the, the plague just before the, um, the request of God for all of Israel to kill a lamb and put that blood above their doorposts. So we, just before the request of the Passover lamb from all the Israelites. So we have this darkness of Egypt that falls on the land, and then the Passover lamb that is requested and that is, is called from all the Israelites, and they, by faith, do this. And then they hide inside their homes so that they're safe. Their firstborn is safe. But here on the cross, the darkness falls. This divine darkness, this divine judgment falls, a darkness that could be felt. And it's falling because who is on the cross? The Passover lamb. The one who would be slain for you and me. The one in whom we find safety. The one in whom we find rest. The one in whom we find redemption and hope. The firstborn. Here Jesus is experiencing the judgment of the Father. Jesus is in this moment the Passover lamb. The pattern was set in the story of Israel. Now Jesus is fulfilling it in every way. He became sin for us is what Paul says in Corinthians. He became sin for us. So First, take a moment and consider the depth of spiritual darkness that we all wrestle with and we find ourselves in. When we think about this darkness that's fallen on the land, let's think about the spiritual darkness we wrestle with. The, the darkness of sin has blinded us to our true selves and, and the call that we have to center our lives on God. Instead, we're living for our own glory, oftentimes centering our lives on ourselves. That is until he opens our eyes. That is until he lifts the darkness. We give ourselves endlessly to things that we think will satisfy, but we only come up empty. They don't really satisfy. So that's the spiritual darkness. Second, c- consider the spiritual darkness and its effect on humanity. Just this unraveling, this coming undone, this confusion and emptiness and this deserved judgment and ultimately death and separation. Jesus meets us in the place of our deepest need, enduring the darkness of separation from God, enduring the darkness of deserved judgment, enduring the darkness of death itself. It's incredible. You know, no one likes to walk into a pitch dark room. I remember growing up, I, I, you know, we get home late at night, I don't want to go in the house alone. It's dark. But if my my little sister, if she was with me, it didn't matter who it was, just someone else who when the monsters come out, I can throw them at them. You know, just, here she is. I'm safe. (laughs) Just someone else needed to be present and it was okay. Jesus was facing this divine darkness all alone. We've already talked about the suffering he was enduring. Now we're about to step into the deep end of the pool and talk about the greatest mystery in the Bible. Divine judgment of God the Father on God the Son. Yeah, darkness fell that day. The Son was dying. 
he was enduring in those moments something we'll never really understand, never grasp. He became sin for us. The just punishment of our sins was being poured out on the Son, our Passover lamb. At 3 p.m., after enduring this deep darkness of God's wrath, we read in verse 34 of a cry of bitter despair, of forsakenness. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You hear in it this despair, this, this feeling of alone. I'm alone. I'm forsaken. I'm abandoned. My God, why? He's quoting, actually, Psalm 22, verse 1. First verse of Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we find questions of why directed at God, which are fine. It's good to ask questions of why. But they're right next to expressions of trust that God will vindicate. God is going to justify. And and I want us to see that together. If you are reading uh, the, the Gospel of Mark with someone, and you're in this section, I would really encourage you to direct their attention to Psalm 22. Jesus quotes it, so we should read it. Some of Jesus' last words before he died. This psalm was in, on his heart. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm, not a man. Scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in Yahweh. Let let Yahweh rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashans encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey. Open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax. It is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and glow over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. We'll stop there. Do you see how Psalm 22 is fulfilled in Christ. You're casting lots for his clothing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet my confidence is in you. You ever feel that way? 
Jesus knew he had to be forsaken. And he knew it wouldn't be the end of the story. But he's crying out. What seemed like senseless suffering and enormous defeat was in actuality, listen, the greatest act of God's love and power and justice in human history. So with a loud cry, he breathed his last. In Luke, it says he, that Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It is finished. Gospel of John quotes Jesus saying, it is finished. It's done. Mission accomplished. I believe that Jesus' last cry, his last breath, it was a cry of victory while staring death in the face. Last quote we're going to look at this morning is from another soldier. We started with soldiers. We're ending with one soldier, in particular a centurion who was in charge of the whole thing. It says in verse 37, With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. So the curtain separated the holy place from the most holy place. If you understand the tabernacle or the setup of the temple, there was the holy place and then the most holy place, the holy of holies. And in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant and some other objects, but the priest would enter it once a year after sacrificing only once a year. Nobody entered the holy of holies. There was a curtain that divided the Holy of Holies, and on this curtain was this beautiful embroidery, uh, and there there were these cherubims who were these angelic beings with wings that guarded the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were kicked out. It was symbolic of God's judgment and God's presence. You do not enter. You do not enter. God is holy, 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 and you are not. Do not enter. What happens after Jesus dies? The temple, the the curtain in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Jesus' death opened the way for you and I. Full access is given. This tells us immediately that the temple sacrifices are now obsolete. That Jesus' sacrifice is enough. The tear tells us that Jesus' sacrifice was enough to open the way, to, to grant us the full access that we need to come before God boldly. Grace is now available to us, to all of us, to enter in God's presence. We can read about this in Hebrews. I encourage you to do this in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. We can now boldly approach this throne of grace. We can find mercy. This curtain has been torn. Jesus' body has been torn so that we can now approach God. He's still holy. He hasn't changed. So what has changed? Jesus' sacrifice, it opened the way so that the unholy could stand before the holy and have genuine relationship. How? Because our sin was paid for. This transfer happened. Our sin was put on Christ and his righteousness is given to us. So now we can stand before a holy God, righteous, cleansed, forgiven, 
In Mark chapter 1, it begins this beautiful way. Mark begins the gospel. This is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And now here in 15 verse 38, as a sort of bookend, this centurion, this commander of hundreds is standing there before Jesus. Now this man has seen thousands die in his, in his day. He's, I'm sure, very hardened. But the way Jesus dies, he stands, he, recognizing, he recognizes that this man is a righteous man, and he says, surely this is the Son of God. So here Mark is helping us. He's framing his story by, by helping us see. Mark is saying, this is the Son of God, Jesus. This is, about, this is the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. And the centurion now is capping it off, and he's saying, this is the Son of God. And he's been presenting the truth of who Jesus is throughout the entire book. Jesus was forsaken, church. Jesus was forsaken so that you won't be. Jesus was, he suffered. He understands your suffering so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus endured the deep darkness. You don't have to anymore. You don't have to walk through the darkness. You, You couldn't bear it. But he bore it for us. This is the centerpiece of God's storyline of rescue and love. It's a masterpiece like no other. And I pray, to, I pray that we would just keep leaning in and appreciating each brushstroke. The glory and the beauty of what was accomplished for us. That it wouldn't just become, oh, we'd be so familiar and so mundane that it, it loses its edge. This is the centerpiece of God's story of rescue and love. It's what we'll always be looking back at and saying, God, This is how you've demonstrated your love for us. This is how you have shown us that you love us. This is how you have accomplished our rescue. This is how you've granted us access. Mission accomplished. It is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done in Jesus. Thank you for the wonder and for the mystery, the glory and the beauty of this masterpiece of your grace. Continue to humble us. Continue to, Lord, awaken us to the beauty, to the wonder. Help us to lean in for the rest of our lives to see the beauty behind every brushstroke. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.